2: Today's episode of the Sixers Beat is a mailbag edition of the Sixers Beat. Going over topics like what Doc Rivers' playoff rotation could look like, how many games George Hill might play in before the playoffs begin, why Doc Rivers won't play b-ball Paul more, how much the Sixers should prioritize Joel Embiid getting rest here over the final couple of weeks, what's going into Joel Embiid's improved mid-range jump shot, Where Tobias Harris ranks in the NBA? And who is the more processed sixer, Tony Roten or Jakar Sampson? Enjoy the podcast. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by, well, I'm actually not joined by anyone. Uh, Rich had something come up is not able to make today's podcast. So we are going to do a Sixers beat first. This is a solo podcast. Uh, So what we're going to do here is I have a bunch of questions from the listener mailbag. We're going to go through them, hopefully pretty quickly, uh, because I don't want to be up here talking straight for, you know, for an hour straight. Probably don't want to be listening to me for an hour straight, but we will try to go through some of these questions. It will probably end up reading a little bit more like an article rather than a typical back and forth podcast that we would have. Um, but maybe we can, maybe it'll be useful. Uh, maybe it'll be interesting, a, or maybe it'll be a complete train wreck and we will burn the tapes and never try this again, but we'll give it a shot here and we'll see how it goes. This one comes from David early at David early on Twitter. And he's basically asking about the minutes that the Sixers play without Embiid and beat Uh Simmons. Does doc really think they're worth it? Or is it just a regular season grind type of thing? So, I guess let's start off with some baseline numbers here. And I'm going to try to not make this, this this will probably be the, the part of the podcast, which is most numbers heavy, um, but just some baseline numbers. And this is mostly be talking about three things here. Offensive rating, which is just how many points you score per 100 possessions. Defensive rating, which is just how many points you allow per 100 possessions. And the net rating, which is just the net between those two. Subtract defense from offense and you get net rating. Really not even an advanced statistic. Uh, it's just normalizing based off of pace of play. And these numbers will all come from cleaning the glass. I like using cleaning the glass developed by former Sixers executive Ben Falk, by the way. I like using cleaning the glass because A, it trips out garbage time minutes, which can influence these numbers and are not really in a competitive portion of the game. Uh, but I also like using clean glass because it's really easy to filter. So that's where these are coming from. So as a baseline, the starting five has a plus 16.2 net rating in 1000 possessions that drops to a plus 15.6 net rating uh, with Ben and Joel on the court, but any other combination around them. And that's a plus 15.6 in 1,972 net ratings or one possessions. I mean, Uh, both of those are incredible numbers. Uh, Just absolutely incredible towards the top of the league in high minute lineups. When you run out Joel without Ben Simmons, you have a plus 3.5 net rating. And with neither Ben or Joel on the court, you actually do come out with a plus 1.4 net rating overall. That drops to a negative 3.4 net rating when there are no starters on the floor. So I guess we'll start off with the, the all bench lineups, which have become a point of contention. This is something we pointed out coming into the season. Doc liked to use all bench units a lot during the regular season last year with the Clippers In fact, their third, fourth, and sixth most-used lineups were all entirely bench units uh, during the regular season. Here's the good news. During the 2019-20 playoffs with the Clippers, there were zero possessions, zero non-garbage time possessions, with neither Kawhi or Paul George on the floor, according to Cleaning Glass. So if you're hopeful that the rotations will change for the playoffs, that is a pretty good indication that they will. Now, going back to whether or not they could theoretically survive, not with the the all bench lineups. I don't think that is feasible in the playoffs at all. But could they survive with maybe staggering Tobias Harris so he is leading a bench heavy lineup? So far this year, that has actually worked. Uh, Tobias, without Ben or Joel on the court, has a plus 11 net rating in 562 possessions. That includes about a league average offense of 113.2. Offensive rating, but a one of the best defenses, a 102.2 defensive rating, which ranks in the 98th percentile. I have a lot of skepticism whether or not that would translate to the playoffs. I, I have a lot of skepticism whether or not that would continue on a larger sample size. A lot of that right now is they're drastically outshooting the opponents on long mid-range jumpers. Uh, the Sixers are making 44% of their long mid-range jumpers with that lineup with Tobias and out Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid compared to 31% for the opponent. That's a drastic disparity. I would expect over a larger sample, the opponents will make more, the Sixers will make fewer, and that will become, uh, you know, a little closer. And they're outshooting from a percentage basis from three by about a percentage and a half. Now, the reason that's key is because that lineup, that Tobias Harris-led bench unit lineup, only takes 25% of their shots from three, which is in the bottom first percentile league-wide, so they are very reliant on long mid-range jumpers. If you see any kind of regression in those numbers, that plus 11 will shrink pretty quickly. Um, But more specifically, I have a lot of skepticism whether or not when you get the playoffs and the opponent's rotation shrinks and you're playing a playoff-caliber opponent every night, I think the flaws of that lineup would start to be exposed. Specifically defensively, uh, I think they would... And offensively too. Um, You know, I'd be interested to see how that would work with George Hill and whether he could help get them into their half court offensive sets a little better than they currently do. We have spoken a lot about shake Milton and his struggles leading that bench unit. Tyrese Maxey is pretty much out of the rotation. So they would need George Hill to come in and play a strong two-way game to give that Tobias Harris led bench unit a chance. Uh, But I would, I would expect that we will see a stagger of Embiid and Simmons at least more than they currently do, if for no other reason than I think that will give them the best chance to remain competitive defensively by having one of your two, um, you know, defensive player of the year candidates out there. So I would expect, based off of both the what we saw with the Clippers last year, and also just you know theoretically, I would expect that you will probably see some. At least I hope so. Uh, I like I said I do have have concerns whether or not that the Lynch led bench unit can uh, can succeed against the increased competition. But um, you know, this is one thing where I would love to see a 5-10 to 10 game sample towards the end of the season where they start getting into their sort of typical uh, rotations and we can get a little bit of, not just us as analysts, but the team, get a little familiar- familiarity with how they want to play, with how they want to rotate, with what groupings work. Because going into the playoffs completely cold will be tough. But that being said, you've got, you know, the, the last 10 games of the season include three sets of back to backs and you're getting, you know, George Hill, who's who's hopefully playing by that time, who's just sort of getting up to speed. So, yeah, it'll 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 be a little bit difficult to get a complete gauge on what's going to happen with those rotations. I would expect we will see certainly the all bench units, I think, are, are are done when we get to the playoffs. I would be very surprised if he kept if Doc kept running him out there. But I think we could see a more aggressive Embiid and Simmons stagger as well. All right, so like I said, that one was probably the the most stats heavy one. I will try not to bore you completely from here on out. This one is is sort of related. Um, from Migdig at mig underscore D-I-G on Twitter, he set an over under for six point five games of George Hill, um, where George Hill will play six point five games before the playoffs. So before the Sixers um, played on Friday night. Doc Rivers came out and he said uh, he said he had no timeline, but he would expect that Hill would return sooner rather than later. He then went on to say, I would say sometime next week. Uh, and then he called that an optimistic guess, but he is optimistic about it. So if he came back next week, we would be talking about 14 to 15 games. So I would certainly say that would indicate the over on on 6.5. Now, even if, if we pushed it back a week, let's say Doc was too optimistic by a week. Uh, you would still be talking about 12 games. So unless Doc was like, you know, two weeks off, you're probably not getting under that six number. Now, look, if you're a Sixers fan and you understand coming back from from injuries isn't all that straightforward, I get it. I've, I've been living here too. I've been living with this team as well. And if you want to look at Doc and say, well, his 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 injury updates aren't always the most accurate, I get that too. But I do think, you know, one of the key takeaways was that he played, um, George Hill played his first live practice on Thursday. It wasn't a full five-on-five practice. It included some coaches, but it was full contact. Uh, and Rivers made a joke after the game that, you know, Hill, his thumb was fine. His lungs were not. He's he's making a joke about conditioning. Nothing more serious than that. But that would, I think, indicate that he is on the right track. If he Basically, if it's under 6.5, it sounds like he has had a setback. And I can't guarantee there won't be a setback, but that's sort of where we stand right now. So it'll be interesting to see what his minutes look like when he comes back. Are are we talking 10 to 15 minutes per game to get him ramped up? Will he be able to play 20 minutes per game sooner rather than later? I think that'll be interesting, but I certainly would expect more than six games at this point.
1: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside
2: seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to michelobultra.com/courtside to learn more. All right, the next question comes from Francis Parker at Francis Zones on Twitter. How many players will Doc play in the playoffs? Will Shake, Furkan, or even Seth be left out? So I guess we'll start off with the guarantees. You know, obviously a starting five, uh, Seth isn't going to be left out. And look, I know Seth has been struggling a lot lately. His last six games, six points per game on 32% shooting, 26% from three, a game score of just 2.9. He's been atrocious. Prior to that, though, he was playing reasonably well in the games between the All-Star break and the six-game stretch. He was averaging 14.3 points on 44% shooting and 39% from three, again, after the All-Star break prior to this six-game struggle. Uh, so he you know, he, w- he will get back, I think. Will he ever be what he was at the start of the season? I don't know. I don't know if that was just a hot stretch. I don't know if that was, uh, if, if the COVID diagnosis is still lingering and affecting him, but I think he will be in the playoff rotation. I think Doc will value what he brings next to Embiid. So yes, Seth, I do not believe Seth will be left out of the playoff rotation. So we'll start off with the sure things in the playoff rotation. i just starting five, Embiid, Simmons, Harris, Curry, and Green in the playoff rotation. George Hill, assuming there's no setback with his thumb in the playoff rotation. And Dwight Howard, as much as I sort of wish there was another option there at backup center, Dwight Howard, because they do need another big man, will be in the playoff rotation. So that's seven. The question then comes down to Shake Milton, Furkan Korkmaz, and Matisse Thybulle. I think if you had asked this question to me two weeks ago, uh, you probably would have had a, a nine-man rotation, the seven guarantees we talked about, and then Milton and Thibel. But obviously, Korkmaz is shooting the lights out. His defense has been a little more competitive. Uh, not a little bit, pretty significantly more competitive than it had been in prior years. Will that translate to the playoffs? You know, one thing with Korkmaz, I think he has pretty quick hands, but really slow feet, or at least below average foot speed for sure. Uh, and obviously, he's not the strongest in the world. You know, in the playoffs, when you're going up against higher level competition, could that slow foot speed hurt you more than it currently is? I do worry about that a little bit, and I worry about whether he will be able to compete at that level. That being said, if he's going to continue to average 16 per game or whatever he is, uh, and really the Sixers' only high-volume three-point shooter, certainly only high-volume above the break three-point shooter, because Danny is uh, pretty high-volume, but a lot of them come from the corners. Korkmaz, he's, he's been stretching that defense and he has real gravity and sometimes shooting and gravity are different. It, a lot of it has to do with your reputation, how quickly you can get the, get, get the shot off, uh, the diversity of your shot and how much that terrorizes a defense. Korkmaz's shot is something defenses pay attention to probably more than almost anyone on his team with the, the exception of maybe Curry possibly throw green in there as well. The teams leave green a little more than I would expect them to, um, which which works out for the Sixers because he is nailing those corner threes at a very high clip. But Korkmaz certainly has gravity. And he has a little bit of an off the dribble game. He has a little bit of a attack or closeout game. Can score a little bit off of a pick and roll, even on a pull-up jumper, and has a tiny bit of uh of, of creativity as well. So I think he has a chance if he can defend to be in that rotation. You know, but if if you ask me how many players, I would probably say ten. And those ten that I just listed, will they will Doc play 10 every game? No, probably not. But I think some of it will match matchup dependent. Some of it will be dependent on whether or not, uh, you know what you need in that specific game. But I don't think, you know, I don't think any of those 10 players will be totally left out. I think they will all have a chance and all have situations where they will be used. Um, I do think it'll be interesting. And I think this is a question I have coming up later. Milton's minutes, I think will be interesting. I don't think he'll be locked out of a rotation. I think his combination of shooting, and a little bit of off the dribble jumper and a little bit of passing. Uh, well, while, while some of that has regressed from where it was last year, if he gets it going, he still provides a six with something that they don't have a whole lot of. Uh, and then he has at least the size to be a non-negative defender. Uh, I don't think he will be shut out of the rotation, but it will be interesting to see. Uh, I actually really interested to see how, how, how shake looks next to George Hill. When he's not asked to run the offense nearly as much as he has been at times this year, you know I think when I was watching Shake scouting him at SMU, watching him in you know the G League and the summer league, and early on in his Sixers career, I thought they're doing him a little bit of a disservice running him at the point guard. He's a little more natural of an off-ball threat, a real good off-ball shooter, catch-and-shoot shooter who has enough handle and athleticism to attack an aggressive closeout. And when the decisions are pretty easy, you know, drive and kick dump off, he's not a negative passer. But I think when asked to run an offense, he has struggled certainly at times this year. I'm real interested to see what he looks like next to George Hill. I actually think, you know, I, a lot of people, myself included at times, will say George Hill is going to eat into Milton's minutes. That may be true. But George Hill might also put Milton in a spot where he can contribute more. Um, not necessarily on a a per game or uh, even a minute total, but where he can be more effective in the minutes where he's on the court. Um, I'm interested to see how that looks. Uh, One of the reasons I hope they get George Hill back relatively soon. All right. This next one comes from Jan Janssen, John Johnson, WIP on Twitter. Who is the more process Sixer, Jakar Sampson or Tony Roten? You know, I think, I think a lot of people will say Roten, and I get it. Uh, I get it because a, he was exciting for some people. At least I, I didn't particularly enjoy watching his brand of basketball, but he was a hyper athletic player who was exciting at a time when the team was exceptionally boring to watch on the court, exciting off the court, but boring to watch on the court. So I think he was processy in that regard. He was a type of, you know, by low candidate who had enough athleticism and talent in that respect, where if he could, iron out the rough edges of his game in the shooting and the decision-making and the turnovers, he could end up being worth more than what you invested in him. So he's processing from that regard. And also probably most specifically, he's processing because he had such a uh, major role in making trust the process, what it is today. Uh, You know, he, he, he spoke about that. I think he was the first one to really say that phrase uh, when he was talking about coming back from an injury and just trusting the process. So he is process very processy in a lot of different ways. I think Jakar has some of that in that he was a college four man who was a good defender and had no real offensive game. and They tried to grow it and hysterically tried to make him a point guard at times. So I think he is processy in some of the same respects as Tony, maybe not quite the same um, degree, but processy in that regard. But also, there's another reason, and I think uh, a reason that was. Pretty interesting. I'm not sure if I've ever actually told this story, uh, but basically, back at the 2016 trade deadline, the Sixers were uh, set to make a trade. There was a, a three-team trade that was great: upon Sixers, Rockets, and Pistons. And from the Sixers' perspective, they were going to get back Joel Anthony and a second-round pick, so they had to clear a roster spot. Um, I think that was a trade they were going to send out Choo Choo Madrigal actually um, in that trade. So they they ended up cutting. Jakar Sampson to clear the roster spot to take on Anthony who they weren't going to keep but you have to have the roster spot to make a trade go through so uh they they cut Jakar uh, the trade ends up not going through after it was agreed upon after the trade call happened um Donatus Monte actually failed a physical and that gave Detroit the up op- the option to cancel the trade which they ended up doing um so if you can thank Daryl Morey for uh you know sending um An injured player, apparently, uh, in that deal uh, and ending Jakar's Sixers career because of that. But going back to it, the Sixers were going to uh, the initial intent was that. So that trade gets rescinded, end up waiving Jakar for no reason anyway. But the initial intention was to waive Elton Brand, who the Sixers had signed uh, earlier in that season to sort of help guide Okafor and Noel. Um, well, the Sixers couldn't get in touch with David Falk, Brand's agent, in time before the trade deadline, and Jerry Colangelo, who was hired about two months prior to that, didn't want to waive a player without being able to contact his agent first, especially a powerful agent like David Falk. Uh, So since Colangelo objected to waiving Brand, the Sixers ended up waiving Jakar instead. So that is sort of how Shakar's Sixers career came to an end. And it just sort of ties everything that was going on at that time together. Uh, you've got a changing, convoluted mess of a power structure. You've got Hinky sort of on his way out. You've got a reprioritization of agent relationships, a reprioritization of veteranness. Uh, you've got a uh, player in Elton Brand who was going to be waived wasn't waived ended up a few years later becoming the Sixers GM and essentially stepping into Sam Hankey's role with the team after the Colangelo era. Of course, you've got the shifting to the Colangelo regime uh, and you've just got a convoluted mess of, of relationships and uh, power structures that really only somebody following the team through that era would think, yeah, this uh, it makes sense that this would happen. And it's just, this all is so Sixers. It's just all very Sixers-y. And, you know, I think that for that reason, he is a pretty good representation of the process and the way it sort of ended and the convoluted, head-scratching mess that it became for a little while there. Add in the fact that I enjoyed watching Jakar play a little bit more, uh, and I will say Jakar is the most processy Sixer of those two. All right, so now we're going to move on to Michael Becht, at Becht, B-E-C-H-T, Michael, on Twitter. Thoughts on Doc's refusal to see if B-Ball Paul can help. Um, He then goes on to say, 32 minutes for Tolliver and Scott on a night with no Howard, or Tobias seems pointless to me. Tolliver isn't even eligible for the playoffs. So I guess just to clear that up, uh, Anthony Tolliver, if he would sign a rest of the season contract, would be eligible for the playoffs? The rule that I think he's confusing is the waiver deadline, which was, what, April 9th, I think it was? That is a deadline for a player under contract to be waived, waived and be eligible for the playoffs. It's not the deadline for a player to sign a contract and be eligible for the playoffs. Just as a, a, a point, uh, a couple of years ago, back in 2019, the Sixers signed Greg Monroe on April 4th, who... Um, you know, that was that was about 10 days before the playoffs started. Not that the Greg Monroe era went well in the playoffs, but he Greg Monroe was pretty famously um, eligible for the playoff roster because he got destroyed in that playoff, uh, that Toronto series. So Anthony Tolliver, if he shows something the next 10 day, maybe gets the second 10 day, shows even more, and then gets a rest of the season contract, he would be eligible for the playoffs. Moving back to B-ball Paul, look, B Ball Paul is an interesting prospect, played exceptionally well in the G League. Uh, I think he has a future as a, you know, sort of a, a lottery ticket stretch five. Do I think he's ready? No, now. No, I think that would be totally unfair. Um, I think his technique needs a lot of work. I, I know rich mentioned this earlier, but he's, he, he's right. He's a very upright defender. He's got to learn his, both his defensive stance has got to improve and he's got to learn angles better. Um, he's going to make a lot of mistakes that stretch five is the anchor of your defense and expecting a rookie who was just playing at DePaul, who was the third last pick in the draft to come in and be ready from just a, a knowledge of the game and knowledge of the system and knowledge of his teammates. And just from a, a, a being ready, it would be a lot to ask for him to come in and try to play in the playoffs. And I get that Mike Scott has been bad. I get that a lot of the small ball units haven't worked. I get that Dwight Howard doesn't fit with Ben Simmons. I agree with all of those. But I don't think as much as I would love it for it to be true, I don't think B ball paul is an answer against the Brooklyn Nets in the Eastern Conference Finals. It's just it's 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 asking way too much. Um so look, there are things I will criticize Doc Rivers on. Not making B ball paul sort of like the um solution to the backup center problems now isn't isn't really one of them. All right, so let's move on to mike lynch uh from from um sports reference uh, fantastic site I use it all the time good guy too philly guy uh at sport info two four seven how much should Joel play for the rest of the regular season? can strategic sitting and resting have his knee in better shape by the playoffs without jeopardizing his rhythm and cardiovascular conditioning so yeah, I think they could certainly um rest him without jeopardizing his rhythm and and his his fitness i think that is certainly possible i think the questions will come down to can they get the number one seed while resting him and can he be in contention for the mvp vote uh if he misses four more games or three more games i think those will be bigger than the cardiovascular or the rhythm part look they have 16 games left as i record this that includes four sets of back-to-backs If you're looking for rest, taking off a couple of those back-to-backs, or at least not a couple full back-to-backs, but one leg of the back-to-back, I think is where you would look. So the Sixers currently have a four-game lead over the Milwaukee Bucks and a one-game lead, which is essentially a two-game lead because they have the tiebreaker over the Brooklyn Nets. Because you have that tiebreaker, of the last six games, there will be two sets of back-to-backs in the last six games. Because you have that tiebreaker and such a good cushion over the, the Bucks, coming into those six games, you could have a little bit of an idea how much you need to prioritize winning every game. Can you get the one seed while resting Joel one of those games, maybe even two of those games during the final six? Uh, I do think that by having the back-to-back so late in the season, it gives you a chance if they're able to get, you know, if they go into six games, the six-game stretch with a, essentially a three or even a four-game lead over the Brooklyn Nets, then yeah, you could maybe get, him, get Joel two games of those six off and get him in a little better shape coming into the playoffs, um, being a little better rested coming into the playoffs. So I think that will help. Um, but I think what you probably look to more is he's played 30.6 minutes per game since returning from his injury. If you can't get him a, a full night off, if you get that to... 28, 29, even keep it at 30, I think that will help. If you give me 30 minutes per game over these final 16 games and give him two nights off, I think that is sort of where my goal would be. And again, hopefully they can get some separation uh, between themselves and the Nets. Hopefully some of these games, they can get some old school load management in there. Like they have been recently. You know, once they get past this, this upcoming stretch, I think the schedule gets pretty significantly easier. So maybe that can help them get some old school load load management in there. Um, but I don't expect you all to have like four or five nights off here down the stretch, unless they just completely blow the doors off the nets in the, the tail end of the season. Um, so yeah, it it is a concern though. Like the number one thing with Joel, you, if you don't have Joel and healthy and at the top of his game in the playoffs, you don't have a contender. Uh, so as much as he wants, and the one seed is very important. Um, I think that is something they should be pushing for at this point. But hopefully you would find a way to get that one seed and also get you like I said, 30 minutes per night, two nights off. That to me is sort of like the goal.
0: You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like it's been done. You know, I didn't want to I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.
1: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover... Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: All right, this one from Robert Lyon at ibleedgreen6465. Why does Doc not have Vanguard opposing team's best players until the fourth quarter? And do you think that helps or hurts him in the defensive player of the year race? So, I mean, why is, is I think, pretty simple. I think he is conserving him. I think he feels like if he defends some of these types all game, he will either get in foul trouble or expend a lot of energy and not have what he needs by the end. You know, I, I wouldn't say he necessarily has him off of best players until the fourth quarter, Uh, I think earlier on in games. And we saw this the other night with Paul George, he switches on and off. You'll see two possessions where Danny green takes him, then two possessions where Ben takes him, And then it could shuffle throughout the game, even when both green and Simmons are on the floor together. You know, I think, I think it's mostly just conservation, uh, energy conservation. Um, you know, could, could you ask Ben to do more? I mean, we've seen him do more in terms of, um, consistently being on, on on that number one option in prior years i think he has i think ben has um you know we don't see ben get tired too often but i look uh we just went from talking about joel Embiid and getting him rest um having ben not expend so much energy during the regular season i think makes some sense it'll be interesting to see whether or not they change that a little bit in the playoffs because we have had some instances where danny green just isn't able to keep up defensively against some of these players so i it's I would sort of hope that you would see Ben Simmons ramped up a little bit in the playoffs when it matters, but some of these teams like, uh, you know, like, like, like Brooklyn, he's not going to have a chance to rest anyway. So, uh, I, I think, I think he'll be on number one options a little more frequently in the playoffs. Does it help or hurt his case? I don't know. There's a lot of the narrative around Ben as defensive player of the year is real strong. And I think we are sort of, um, you know, I think the the media environment is enough where like when he holds someone to one of seven shooting that gets known and that gets seen. I don't think necessarily he has to defend him, uh, 30 minutes, an opposing score, 30 minutes per night to get noticed. So I think, I think, I think his case is pretty strong. Um, I think it's pretty strong. Like I said, I, I am still of the belief that a center is just in position to make, be much more impactful on defense. And I think, uh, go check out, um, go to theathletic.com slash Sixers Beat Rich had an article with this, taking a look at that from a statistical point of view. If When you have elite rim protectors, an elite big man who can alter so many shots in the paint, um, I do think that is going to have more of an impact on team defense than perimeter players. And I think Ben is the sort of um, most valuable version of a perimeter player and that he can switch and defend very legitimately, very capably at an elite level for positions. And I think that, uh, especially if you start talking about constructing a team uh, where you're not reliant on a rim protector, I think that can be very beneficial. But I do still think that an elite rim protector, of which there are two in the league, an Embiid and Rudy Gobert, just makes a more consistent, more uh, sizable impact on that floor. So, look, I think, I think defense player of the year. I think Ben is the third best defender. Not best, because I, I, I think some of this is just what skill sets are more valuable, which physical profiles are more valuable. And I think Ben is the best version of his archetype. But I do think that a rim protector makes more. So I think Ben is the third most impactful defender. I'll use that instead of saying best. I think Ben is the third most impactful defender in the league. It just so happens that there are two transcendent rim protectors that are currently leading uh, two of the best defenses in the league. So I would say that, that that Rudy Gobert and Joel Embiid impacts Ben's defensive player of the year case a lot more than how often he guards Paul George the other night. This one from Mike Arnt at Mike underscore n underscore Ike 35. Do shakes recent inexperienced mistakes make you reconsider his playoff role with the rise of Furkan and Hill's return coming soon, sort of spoke about this a little bit earlier. I think Hill's going to be real interesting because it could cut into his minutes, but I think could put Shake back into a role that he is better equipped for. But certainly Furkan's rise is could could cut into some of Shake's minutes if he doesn't get his shit together. And Shake's actually been shooting ball a little bit better recently, but it's almost come at the expense of some head scratching moments in terms of decision-making, really on both the sides of the court. And that's why I think Hill's return could be actually beneficial, even though it could cut into his minutes, because it could could take some of that decision-making burden off of his plate and allow him to get back to what he does well, which would be a really good spot-up shooter, attack closeouts when teams have to uh, defend that shot, and make relatively simple, but still important decisions when teams do rotate. So I think, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that he can sort of find his groove when he'll comes back. Because I do think he is, you know, if, if he is playing at what he is capable of, which is a really good spot up shooter that can at least compete defensively with his size and length. Um, I think he, 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 I think the Sixers in order for Sixers to be the best version of their team, shake Milton is getting playoff minutes. I do believe that. All right. The next one from two, one, five, four for four. He would love to know Embiid's percentage on two point jumpers this year. All right, so that's a pretty straightforward question. He is currently shooting 50.9% on two-point shots outside of the paint. So that is within a three-point line, but outside of the painted area. That that leads the team. Uh, Not only that, but that is actually the fourth highest or fifth highest percentage among players who have taken at least 100 mid-range field goal attempts. Kyrie Irving leads the league at 56%. Kevin Durant at 53%. LaMarcus Aldridge at 51.2% and Chris Paul at 50.9% are above Joel. So when you look at that list, what stands out? Well, outside of LaMarcus Aldridge, they're all very high usage creators in the half court. They're players that their teams rely on to generate offense. And this is one of the things that when we had that sort of mid-range, you know, our mid-range shots bad discussion a few years back, it became a little too cut and dry a little too binary mid range shots are important for high usage players to be able to generate a high percentage of their team's offense while still maintaining, like you're not going to be able to have a 30% usage rate only on drives to the rim and three point attempts for, for a perimeter player. It's just not possible to generate that much offense with those, um, only, high, super high quality, super high expected value shots. It's just teams are too good at defending it. The elite players, the elite high usage players are able to make those sort of mid-range shots or shots that that other teams give them, they're able to make them efficient. And in prior years, Embiid wasn't. You know, last year Embiid shot 40.2% on two point shots outside of the paint, a full 10% less. The previous year, 2018-19, he shot 36.1% on those shots. Teams were giving him that shot. He wasn't making them at a great clip. And I think that led to some turnover problems that he had. Not being confident enough to make that a high dosage of his offense led him to maybe some ill-advised post-ups or some drives that weren't there where he was forcing it and doing too much. And I think that led to some of his turnover problems. So I think that by you know, improving his mid-range game to the point where it is now, by having confidence in it now, it allows him to not force the issue as much as he had in previous years, thereby helping to reduce his turnovers, putting him in a position, you know, at the free throw line area where he can better see double teams and allows him to be a better version of himself. It's, a, it's really a big reason why he is having so much success offensively uh, and where he has elevated his offensive game to the point where you can take what was once a, an elite defender who had a ton of offensive talent, but made too many mistakes, had too many negative offensive plays. Now he's at the point where he is not only an elite defender, he's one of the best offensive players in the league as well. And that's why you have an MVP case. I think the mid range jumper has been very key in that. um, And they have put in a lot of work. You know, I've said this before that this wasn't just something he started doing this summer. He was working with Drew Hanlon, with some of the Sixers assistant coaches, Chris Babcock, specifically, Last summer, when the season was on hold um, because of the coronavirus pandemic, he'd been working on that a lot previously. His goal for really since he's entered the league has been to be able to become a multi-dimensional offensive player, not just a post-up player. Uh, and, and that face-up game, that mid-range game, that drive game has been a, a big part of that. He has made that jump to where he is one of the best mid-range players in the league. Uh, and that has been very key in his, his growth offensively one more and then we will get out of here uh, because now I'm talking way longer than I expected this from from Zach contracts aside how many NBA players are clearly better than Tobias Harris. So I guess I'll start off here with some advanced statistical rankings and I don't think these advanced statistical rankings, these all-in-one metrics are really all that useful a lot of times. Like I'll never look at a list of players by BPM box plus minus and think Well, if it says that this such and such player is 19th and such and such player is 25th, then that's it. That's that's how they're ranked. That's not how I view these. How I view them is they tend to, especially when you start looking at them in conjunction with each other, they tend to maybe reveal something that we, when we're watching the game or just looking at the basic sort of box score stats, they might point out something that we're missing and that we have to go back and look. And with Tobias in previous years, you know, in... So this is, I'm going to start off with 2019-20 season and just go back. So 2019-20, second number of 2018-19, and so on. These are full season stats. But VORP, value of replacement player, had Tobias at 45th, 38th, 30th, 36th, 41st, and 44th. Box plus minus, even more negative towards Tobias in previous years. Last year, it was 97th in net rank. And these are on players with at least, I think 1,000 minutes is what I used as the um, cutoff point. But box plus minus 97th, 63rd, 55th, 54th, 60th. So even during seasons where he was playing for and with Doc, these sort of advanced metrics said, hey, he might not be quite as good as maybe his 20 point per game average is suggesting. Why is that? And that's where you started looking into. Well, he doesn't get the free throw line. He doesn't shoot enough threes. He doesn't really create for his teammates. His defense is below average. Yeah, he's scoring, but there's other aspects of the game. That have to be taken into account, and I think these some of these advanced metrics pointed that out, and were and they're a little more useful. You know, some of these you will have wild divergences, um, but when they are consistent, you know, I think there's a little more value when RPM and wind shares and box plus minus and VORP when they're all consistently placing somebody in the same range. That I think has a little more strength because they they each have their own strengths and weaknesses as a metric. So here I'm just gonna go through. This year's advanced stats for Tobias. RPM still has him at 39th. It's lowest on him by far. Win shares per minute, 25th. Box plus minus 19th. And value over replacement player, 20th. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm filtering out people who play fewer than 1,000 minutes for those stats where it's relevant. Advanced stats say, hey, he's probably in the, the 20s in terms of uh, rank. Now, when I look at those lists specifically... You know, there's some very few players ahead of him in those ranks where I'd say eh, he's 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 better than, but there are some players below him where I'd say, yeah, I would, I would take those players over him. So if I'm just looking at this year's performance, I would say probably, um, and look, I think a lot of players, once you start getting out of the top 20 and you start looking at the 25 through 40 range, the difference between the 25, the fifth, 25th best player and the 40th best player might be the position that they're in. And I think Tobias might show you that a little bit, uh, in that he is so much better this year compared to previous years where he was in the, he was outside of the top 40 in a lot of these advanced metrics, I think circumstance comes down to a lot. Who are you playing alongside of? What are they asking you to do? Can you be effective in the role they are asking you to do? Uh, can the coaching staff put you in the right spot? I think these types of players are very dependent on that. And I think with Tobias, one of the things when I was look, looking into this question you know, first of all, I guess we can go to why is he ranked higher on a lot of these lists right now? Well, he has a 61% true shooting percentage. Coming into this year, his career his career average was 56%. When you have a 5% higher true shooting percentage, that is going to increase your offensive effectiveness a lot. He's also playing alongside of Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid full-time. That helps with his a lot of his defensive metrics and puts him in a, a defensive position where he can succeed. And a lot of that true shooting is he is shooting almost 48% on shots from 16 feet to the three-point line. That was 41% coming into the season for his career. So he is having an elite shooting, an elite mid-range shooting season. One thing I thought was interesting when I looked into this. So this is the percentage of his field goals that are assisted. So far this year, only 34.8% of his two-point field goals are assisted. Now, previously with the Sixers, that was up towards half. In fact, if you look at his career, the three and for his his career, 49% of his two-point field goals are assisted. If you look his three lowest seasons are all with Doc Rivers. Uh he is Where's my numbers? Yep. Uh so 34.8% this year, 34% in 2018-19 with Doc and then 42.4% in 2017-18 with Doc. So I think Doc has has put the ball in his hands said, Tobias, you can create off the dribble. We'll we'll live with the mid-range shots. We'll live with the shots you're comfortable with. And I think that has led to him being a more productive shooter. And, and just getting shots, you know, I think we look at, at jump shots sometimes a little too too black and white. There are varying degrees of difficulty, even on a mid-range jumper, even on jumpers of the same distance. And I think doc, by being willing to live with, Hey, he's not going to get to the rim a lot. He's not going to line a lot. It's not going to create offense for his others, but he can get a reasonably good mid range shot. If I give him the freedom to do so, I think doc has, I think there is a little bit to doc being like, all right, we will, we'll, it's not perfect offense, but in order for me to get the best out of you, I had to live with that imperfection. I think doc has empowered him a little bit in that regard, which is why I said a difference between 40th and, and, Look, I don't think I don't think Tobias even in this year is a top 30 player in the league. I would probably say somewhere this based off of this year, probably right around 30 or 35, just ballparking it. I haven't actually gone through and thought about ranking them. Um, I would say if you look at his recent career, you probably say at least I would probably say somewhere in the 35 to 45 range. So I think he's having... You know, a borderline top 30 season is, I guess, the the way I would say it. Um, Probably more specifically 30 to 35. But I think he's having a much better season than he previously was. And I probably am still not as high on Tobias as some people are. Like, I think if you put him in the top 20, I think that is pretty asinine. You could probably make a case for 25 to 30. But since I'm a little lower, I would say probably 30 to 35. But I would, you know... Contracts aside, he is a good player, a borderline all-star, with probably having a, an all-star caliber first half of the season. Um, not perfect. And I think some of the, the advanced stats in previous years would suggest why. Uh, but the best ver- I think this year is the best version of the bias that we have, have seen. Um, and I think that has helped catapult him up quite a bit. All right, so I'm gonna cut it off right there. I had a few more questions. End up talking for way longer than I expected. I apologize for that. But thank you guys for listening, and we will talk to you all soon.